Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are Into the conference semifinals of the NBA playoffs, the series that's been the most compelling, plus early headlines from the first days of the Stanley Cup playoffs, and the winners and losers from last week's NFL Draft. It's episode 71 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Hola, senores and senoritas, here on Cinco de Mayo 2022, episode number 71 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this podcast wherever you are listening or watching. Of course, we are here on May 5th. Uh, for those of you that are not very good at Spanish like myself, uh, it, it's simple Spanish. It's, you know, complex Spanish. It's not really good on, on my end. So I do know about Cinco de Mayo. I know, you know, Biblioteca and all that other stuff. Um, but I hope you are celebrating the holiday very safely and uh, with the people you love. And of course, for all the nerds, the day before was May the 4th. Hope you binge Star Wars as much as you can. Me personally, I am not a Star Wars fan. I have only seen one of the, actually, no, two of the movies. The very first one and then the one when the franchise got rebooted or something like that by Disney. Um, so, it's definitely an exciting time for everyone out there with the Star Wars holiday and now the holiday today. In the Swamp Scout area, I'm looking out the window right now. The sun is shining. There's not a cloud in the sky. So once we are all set here, we're going to spend a lot of time uh, outside enjoying the beautiful weather. And hopefully within the next week or the next couple of days, it's going to get warmer. You know, I'm stuck being in the I'm done being in the 40s in the 50s. I want to get it to the 60s, the 70s. I'm really looking forward to summertime, um, but we'll enjoy the time we have now. Of course, you can't have the spring without the playoffs. We got the uh, NHL that just got started. We had the NFL draft, but we're going to start this week once again by looking at the NBA playoffs because we are down to the final eight. Eight teams remain, four different series, and we'll just break down each one of them. And we start... It's kind of interesting, first off, before we get into the series, just looking at them in general, you got the ones versus the four. They're both at 2 nothing, and then the two and three matchups are 1-1. One, one. So I think that's exactly how the bracket is dialed up. Obviously, the top seeds having the easier matchups, but we'll just dive in really quickly to all four series. And I think the obvious one to start with is Heat Sixers, you know, just going in order. The number one seed in Miami Heat, um, it, what's funny is that they're playing so well, but no one's really talking about them. Everyone's talking about no Joel Embiid for Philadelphia. Uh, we learned earlier in the week before the series even began that uh, he suffered an orbital fracture and a concussion in that last game against Toronto. He's missed the first two games so far. And uh, according to Doc Rivers, there is no, there's no certainty for Embiid playing in game three uh, or game four when we go to Philadelphia. And 
you know, as much as I do want to talk about Miami, because I think they are playing really, really well, I feel like you have to talk about the Sixers just because you've got a guy who is arguably the MVP of the season, not in the lineup. And just watching the first two games between these two, I would say Philly has no chance to win this series without Embiid in the lineup. Because let's face it, he is the offense. If your best player is not on the floor, your team is going to take a significant hit. I mean, just look at what the offense has done uh, without him being the series. They can't hit a three if their life depended on it, or more importantly, their season depended on it. I mean, so far in the series, they're 14 of 64. You do the math, that's 22% from three in the series. So the offense has clearly taken a hit. And I feel like that's, you know, that, that's where you miss guys like Seth Curry. And you want guys like Danny Green uh, to start shooting the ball extremely well. But the guys who are hitting threes can't hit them. And then basically your big three, if we're, we're doing it like that, your big three are, is uh, Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, and James Harden. They're not scoring enough. I mean, props to Maxey for putting 34. But after that, what was it? Tobias Harris with 21, James Harden with 20. I mean, that's the second big story of this series is the fact that James Harden is just, he's not what he once was. It, it's hard to say because, I mean, let's face it, he wasn't, he's not playoff material. He's going down that road. This was a guy who could get 30 points in a blink of an eye. I remember that time during Houston, he scored like 30 in what, 20 straight games or something like that. Um and now he's like barely averaging 19 points a game. He can't even hit that mark so far in the postseason. So I don't know what it is about, you know, James Harden that, you know, it, I don't know if it's father time catching up to him or if it's just he's got a different mentality or physically he's not there. I don't know what it is, but this was a Philly team that I said on paper, on paper was the top team in the conference. And so far, you know, they haven't played on paper. They've played on an actual NBA court. And James Harden has not been the Robin to James uh, Joel Embiid's Batman. It, it's simple as that. And now that you have this style of play without Embiid on the court, you're essentially handcuffed because Tyrese Maxey isn't ready for the moment. Tobias Harris, we've seen, is more of a number three or a number four option on a team. And then just all the other pieces that the Sixers have, is just not enough for a Miami team that's playing so well. And really the story on Miami's side of things is just how versatile their lineup is. I say it week after week after week, but just the depth that they have. You could say that Miami probably has the best 11 players, you know, maybe the best 11 players uh, on the floor right now. I mean, you've got the sixth man of the year, Tyler Hero, who is Miami's leading scorer. I mean, 25 and 19 coming off the bench. And then with the absence of Embiid, you've got Bam Adebayo basically having his way with anyone who plays uh, the power forward or the center spot for Philadelphia. Um, just every, all the size that Miami has. Adebayo, who's put in 24 and 12, and then followed that up with 23 and 9. Just having his way against DeAndre Jordan and all the other big men that the Sixers have. Um, and not only that, but just um, dominating the paint in general for the Heat, um, getting the rebounds. Um, but there's really one thing I want to look out, and that's Victor Oladipo. I, a couple of weeks ago, before the regular season had ended, he had come back 
And uh, he had had a really good uh, offensive night. I can't remember exactly when it was, but I think uh, it was near to the end of the regular season. He put up like, I think 20 or 25, something like that in his return. And he's only playing in my eyes really just because Kyle Lowry's out with an injury and look at what he's done. He had 19 off the bench in game two. If this is your guy out of the rotation, that is very, very dangerous. That is a dangerous task um, for Philly to try and defend. When you've got a guy who's out of the rotation, who can come in cold, uh, replace a guy and, you know, throw in 20 points or so that is, that Miami is, you know, if I wasn't a Boston fan, I would be uh, rooting for Miami just because of how strong they look and all the weapons they have. And not to mention, you know, Jimmy Butler, what he can do. And then I mentioned it with uh, Struess and Vincent and Martin and all these other guys, uh, Robinson. Um, this is just a really complete Miami team. And I think, as much as I want to uh, dwell on the struggles that the Sixers have had, that the 76ers have had, I, I have to give credit to Miami for how well they've played, especially defensively, and really just taking advantage of the mistakes that uh, Philly has presented them. So I expect Miami to get this done relatively soon, probably a four or five game series in my eyes, if they continue uh, to have these kinds of games, especially with Embiid out of the lineup. If Embiid comes into the lineup, then I'd say it has a chance to go six. But at this moment, you know, with the next game being Friday night, I would suspect that this series is over by the weekend, that this gets done in four or five games. That's what I think. The Heat will get themselves back to the conference finals. But that's sort of the runaway series in the East. How about the close series in the East between the Celtics and the Bucks? I think it's been the most compelling series so far in terms of on the court. You know, what has gone on? We'll get into what's been the most compelling off the court in a little bit. But you saw what both teams have been able to do in the first two games uh, in Boston. You look at game one, the way Giannis has inserted himself as the best player in the world right now. I mean, he was in the conversation, obviously, in like the top three. But now with uh, Kevin Durant struggling against this same Celtics team uh, and Giannis still available, I would put Giannis right at the top. And then putting him in the triple-double watch, I think, just shows how versatile uh, Giannis really is. I mean, look at game one. 24 points on 9-25 shooting. Yes, he struggled, but 13 rebounds, 12 assists. In game two, he still performed good, but not to the level that everyone was expecting. I mean, he still scored 28 points, uh, 9 rebounds, and 7 assists. But I think you just look at the defensive adjustment that the Celtics had uh, against Giannis. Um, the way that they were, uh, you look at game one, how they really were uh, Giannis heavy. You know, they brought the double teams and now Coach Udoka said, hey, we're just going to trust Al Horford or Grant Williams to go one-on-one. And, and uh, sure enough, they have done. They did a good job in game two. Um, but really the big difference in this series that I see is just whoever shoots better from three seems to be the big difference. I mean, that that's the big difference. You have your little side things of if Giannis can uh, turn things around and get himself to score at the rim a lot more. Because let's face it, I mean, he still had a good shooting night, but, you know, in game one, he was 9 of 25. He shot any better. He could have gone for like 35 or 40. Same thing in game two, 11 of 27. Um, so 
I, I got, I have a feeling that Milwaukee will make the adjustment at some point, whether that's in game three or game four, I do think it's going to be um, a, a long series. I expect it to go six or seven games. Um, I would still favor the Celtics just because of, you know, this is a team that's built on momentum. And I think uh, when you see, you know, when you look at game one, they had five days off and they did look a little rusty. Now you've got, you know, the last time when they played in a uh, game two, it was on Tuesday. Um, so um, actually I think it was uh, Monday. No, Tuesday, Tuesday night they played. Um, and now they have a few days off. So they might look a little rusty in game three. Um, but I think the big difference, as I said, is whoever's going to shoot better from three. I mean, the Celtics have been uh, shooting like crazy. I'd say half of their stats are from three. And then obviously you have those secondary pieces for Milwaukee. You know, Grayson Allen struggled in game two. Pat Connaughton struggled in game two. Um, and really Drew Holiday has been the only consistent scorer so far for the Bucs. You know, do they change the game plan? And do they keep Lopez maybe down low? Or do they, you know, run some offense where they try and stretch him uh, out to the three-point line? Because we know he's a shooter. And, you know, if he comes out, and is sort of threatening from uh, from shooting from three, that could open the paint for Giannis to attack a little more. But that's, again, it's again, it's a game of chess. It's a game of chess between these two. I would still favor the Celtics uh, in game six or seven just because I'm a Celtics fan. So <laughs> I'm going to root for that, and uh, we'll talk about Boston's side of things more when we get into let's get local. But shifting from the east, we go to the west, and again, another 1-4. That's a 2-0 series lead right now. And the Suns right now, after last night, ooh, buddy, the Suns are making the Mavs look foolish over these first two games. I mean, they've led by at least 20 points in both games so far. Now, granted, game one was a seven-point win, but it's been 20 points so far. And Dallas is kind of doing everything right. You know, they're getting scoring from Luka Doncic. He put up 45 in game one. Then he put 35 in game two. But Dallas still got blown out in these games. So there's no consistent second scoring option or third scoring option that Dallas has. When you compare it to Phoenix, who has Mr. Fourth quarter in Chris Paul in, you know, one of the best young players in the league, Devin Booker. And then of course a presence in the middle in Deandre eight. I think when you look on Dallas's sides, you know, as the Sherry sit shifts to Dallas, the Mavericks, I look at Jalen Brunson more so than anyone else. I think he's got to score at least 20 points for the Mavericks to get a shot in there. Cause so far in these first two games, he's averaging 11 points. He's only shooting 31% from the field and 17% from three. So he's clearly got to have a better game. I mean, look at what he did during the series uh, against Utah. The fact of how much slack that he was able to pick up while Luca was out, you know, where is that guy? He's gone. And not only that, but you have Dinwiddie off the bench. Finney Smith, who's a good uh, pick-and-pop kind of guy. You can just uh, catch and uh, give it to him, catch and shoot from the corner. I don't know where he went. Uh, and then just the big guys, the big guys that uh, Dallas have. They just can't match Phoenix's center physically. I mean, not even DeAndre Ayton, but you could throw JaVale McGee in there, and you could throw Bismack Biombo, who even got a few minutes uh, last night in game two because of the foul trouble. You know, guys like Powell, Bertans, and Kleba aren't physical enough with those three guys. Those three guys, uh, their style of play 
uh, Aiden, McGee, and Biombo is to be physical down low. I mean, Aiden has a great presence inside the paint. You've got JaVale McGee as well, who's good on uh, both ends of the floor and is a lob threat. And then Biombo, who is uh, a really good rebounder. Dallas doesn't have anyone to match those three. So I think this is another uh, quick series uh, that Phoenix can take care of. I think Phoenix is going to finish off Dallas at some point. I think it could be a sweep. You know, I think game three is going to be real telling of that. If uh, Phoenix wins, then it's going to, it's going to be a sweep. If Dallas wins, then I think it's going to be five. That that's just my opinion. That's what I'm thinking uh, for this series. Cause just the Suns are just too good right now. They are too good. And Dallas does not have an answer unless they find someone else outside of Luka Doncic to put points on the board. But the other series in the West, I think has been the most dramatic. And that is Memphis Golden State. This is the series for you if you want entertainment and storylines. I mean, the first two games have been just crazy. Absolutely crazy. You go to game one and you've got Draymond Green getting, I think, wrongfully ejected or getting a wrongfully flagrant two. I think it should have been a flagrant one. Because when you look at the play, he's grabbing the jersey and he's pulling him down. But I don't see any malicious intent like Dylan Brooks in game two. I mean, he was, Draymond was trying to uh, wrap him up. Um, And, you know, as much as I don't like him, I think on that play in general, he was not trying to hurt him or it was not in the realm of flagrant two. It was in the realm of flagrant one. And it's only because Draymond Green has the reputation that gave him a flagrant two. But the good thing for the Warriors was that they came back in game one and won that game. Game two, a totally different story. Dylan Brooks rightfully ejected for the hard foul. You know, even if he wasn't uh, trying to hurt Gary Payton the second or try to break his elbow, he did. He took a swipe. He hit him in the head. And Steve Kerr, obviously, he said he broke the code and everyone else hated the move. I'm on the side of, you know, that there was no, as I said, there's no, I don't think Brooks was trying to hurt Gary Payton, but he was trying to be physical with him and he wound up, you know, he took a swing, he hit Payton in the head and by the laws of physics, he came down and broke his elbow and that's huge for Golden State. So I think it's going to be very telling to see what happens in game three, especially the first couple of minutes. If we start to see a little jawing back and forth, I think there are going to be a lot of heated moments, especially with uh, the type of personalities you have on the floor you've got Draymond Green who doesn't back down from anyone who's a talker a trash talker and then you've got a Grizzlies team who yes they're young but they're trying to show hey we're ready for this big stage so I think there's going to be a ton of heated moments in this series but to talk about things on the court just to me the Grizzlies seem to be too heavy on Ja I mean Ja Morant is having incredible performances I mean he had 34 in a game one, he almost had the layup to tie it or uh, to win the game. I should say in game one, game two, he puts in 47. Um, but you know, where are those other guys? You know, I Morant had to do more because one of his favorite options, Brooks was out of the game. You know, you have to see a guy like Desmond Bain. He's got to get better with shooting. Brooks has to stay in the game to bring in some offense. Jaron Jackson jr. Has to take advantage of the lack of size that the warriors have and try to impose his will down in the paint 
Um, so I think it's it's finding a way on Memphis's side of things. It's finding a way to get scoring that's not in the hands of John ja Morant. You can get him like in the fourth quarter to do that kind of stuff, but consistently to start building out a lead to make the Warriors defense kind of change a little bit, you've got to find someone other than John ja Morant uh, to put the ball in the basket. On Golden State side of things, their offense is there's no question on that. When you when you have Curry, Thompson, and Poole, uh, great on the offense. You could even throw Andrew Wiggins in there, uh, being a consistent scorer. And then Draymond, who's a really good passer and a facilitator. The concern I have is the defense. You know, Gary Payton was doing a great job on Ja. Now he's out. Now he's out. Uh, and you need another defender to try and lock him up. You got to find someone to lock up Ja Morant. Um, if I was on the coaching staff for Golden State, I'd probably throw a bunch of different looks at him. I wouldn't put one guy on him, you know, over and over and over. I might switch it uh, to an Andrew Wiggins, uh, throw a Clay Thompson in there, uh, maybe even Draymond from time to time, or even Kevon Looney. Um, I, I think that's what I would do. Um, I do think this is a, a series, again, similar to Boston-Milwaukee. I think it goes the distance. I think this is going to be a seven-game series. I don't see six. I see seven uh, between these two. And I would still favor Golden State. I just think Memphis is still a little bit too young. You know, they'll eventually get there some days. I'd even favor them uh, for next year to get to the conference finals. But I just think the Warriors, they have the experience of their core, including head coach Steve Kerr. They have the core. Uh, for these big moments. So I think, you know, Golden State will find a way to win this series in seven games and get themselves back to the conference finals. But when you get this close to the end of the NBA season, you know that there are exciting times coming. And I'm very much looking forward to what happens during the rest of the conference semis. postseason to get going the nhl just got underway this week it's still it's very weird to see obviously um with the the covid break and the holiday break and all that um but the nhl started their playoffs after the nba i'm normally seeing it uh the other way around but the first round is underway each series has gone at least two games and we've got a couple of game threes tonight and tomorrow um, so again, we'll just go down series by series and uh, just analyze them real quick. We'll start with the Florida Panthers and the Washington Capitals. Um, they've had a very high, they had a very high uh, scoring game one uh, with the Caps winning 4-2. I should say their game two was going to be tonight. Um, but just looking at game one really, really quick. Um, for Florida on my side of things, what I saw is that they just couldn't take care of the puck, especially in that third period. I mean, they they went into that period up to one, and then they gave up three unanswered goals. And when you look at the numbers, they gave away the puck 13 times as compared to Washington only giving it up six times. So I think the defense is something to monitor for the Florida Panthers, you know, especially on the special teams. Um, they were two for three on the penalty kill, but that that one is going to be a difference, you know, down the road. And then obviously they had five penalties for 10 minutes. So 
Florida, again, I was very pessimistic on a deep run. I do think, you know, it, it is only game one, so it could be an overreaction. Um, but I think they can get out of the series and beat Washington. But just looking at the cap side of things, I mean, Ovechkin, he had me nervous for a little bit when he sat out uh, a few regular season games to, uh, to end the regular season. Um, but just looking at him on the ice, he doesn't look too banged up, not really too uh, concerned with uh, injury. But now the concern for the Caps is Tom Wilson. You know, he's their enforcer. Uh, he brings that physicality and he kind of gives the edge. So we already know that for tonight, uh, tonight's game two, he'll be out. So I think that could be a big loss um, if he's out for a sustained part of the series. Just because, you know, not many people like Tom Wilson, maybe except for everyone who's a Capitals fan, uh, just because some of his dirty plays. But he is physical. He's a tone setter. I mean, he even scored a goal in game one. He he was a factor in that game one. So not having him in there, you know, you're going to need more from Ovi. You're probably going to need um, more more from everyone on the Capitals, uh, essentially. TJ Oshie, I think, is one of the guys I'm thinking of that really needs to, needs to do a lot more. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to monitor really closely, um, just to see how, what, just, just what goes on in that series. Um, if the Capitals can't sustain that energy from game one, or, you know, we see it all the times teams win game one, and then they get, uh, generally swept by losing four straight. So, um, we'll see if it's an overreaction, uh, from game one. And if the Panthers can sort of right the ship starting tonight, uh, in game two. Uh, moving on though, I think the best series so far, and it's only been one game, but an instant class, it was an instant classic between the Penguins and the Rangers. I mean, come on, triple overtime, triple overtime Penguins win at four, three. I don't even care who won that game or who got the go ahead goal, the game winning goal. The fact that it went three overtimes shows how close this series is going to be. I think this can go the distance. And when you look at the Penguins lineup, they just have a ton of experience. You got Jake Gensel, who scored twice. Dalton Heinen played well. Obviously, Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin have been the core of it for years now. Um, But the goalie situation is something I've never seen. So the story is that you know, their starter, Tristan Jari, out with the injury. He's been out the first uh, couple of games. So it's been Casey DeSmith, uh, who's been starting pretty much for the past couple of weeks for the Penguins. Uh, DeSmith, into the second overtime, left the game with cramps. He was basically cramping up because it was a second overtime and you don't really play this long. And so then the third stringer, Luis Domingue, came in cold and played 17 minutes of shutout hockey, shutout hockey for the third stringer who was not expected to come in at all. He even said, yeah, in between uh, overtimes, I got some uh, pork and broccoli, which probably wasn't a good sign. I mean, if you're a backup, if you're a third string goalie, not expecting to come in. Yeah. I would have done the same thing. If I, if I had noon, I was going to come in, I would have, you know, stayed away from any kind of food or, or that kind of stuff like that. But there was so much going on with that Pittsburgh side of things. Meanwhile, on New York side of things, Igor Shesterkin made 79 saves and played the whole time. So I give total props uh, to Igor on the Rangers side of things. Um, 
and I don't really fault New York at all. I don't think the series is totally is totally gone. Like I said, I think it's a seven game series. I do think for New York, they probably need a little bit more scoring um, from someone other named Chris Kreider. I mean, I'm looking at Panarin, Petrano, uh, just everyone else that New York has, because we know what Kreider can do. And we know that he's going to score. He's going to get points, whether that be on scoring or from assists. But it's everyone else on that Rangers uh, roster who's on the ice right now. How how do they complement him? Because um, we know Shesterkin, if he's playing, you know, like that for three overtimes, you know, even though he gave up the game winner, he only get he made seventy nine saves. Okay, you can feel confident about that, you know. In that first and that second overtime, he was playing shut down. Uh, he was playing shut down hockey for the New York Rangers, and with uh, his style of play, I feel very confident. If I had to pick a goalie right now, I had to lean on. I'd probably go with him. You know, despite giving up those four. So I think it, if a triple overtime is what happens in Game One, imagine tonight for Game Two. Um, I'm that's going to be another series I'm really looking forward to watching. Um, the moving on though, in the East, the hurricanes and the Bruins, uh, last night, the Canes taking a two Oh lead over Boston and boy, was it chippy last night? Very, very chippy, very chippy. And like, uh, we'll talk about the Bruins sides of things, but for Carolina, I just see them overpowering Boston right now in every possible way. You know, they're one of the better teams that takes advantage of turnovers or badly misplayed pucks that we've seen from the Bruins, um, they, their offense is one of the tops in the league, obviously. Um, but of course, you know, everyone who watched that game is talking about, you know, all the physicality and all the, you know, heated moments that happened. Um, starting with uh, David Pasternak running into uh, the goalie Ranta. I think that was completely inadvertent. So I'm sorry, Coach Rod uh, Brindamore. I don't, I don't agree with what he said in the postgame because he said, you know, it's obvious, you know, what he did accidentally. But when you look at the replay, Uh, Pasternak came in and he tried his best to sort of avoid. He kind of looked like he was pulling back. Um, And then uh, when he was down, I I don't know if this caused the injury or not, but one of his own guys, you know, came, came by him, you know, hit his pad and knocked his helmet off. Um, So I think that's totally inadvertent. You know, you look at the hit on a Hampus Lindholm. I think there was intent there, obviously. Um, But just going on, Outside of the heated moments, I just think Carolina is just too overpowering right now. I think this is going to be a, a very quick series. Um, I think this goes five at the at the max, but we'll see what happens when the series shifts to Boston uh, this weekend. You know, will the Bruins bounce back? That uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but then the final uh, series in the East is Toronto and Tampa. I think that's going to be a great series because you've got, you know, Toronto, who some are saying are Stanley Cup favorites, I only say some just because they have not won a playoff series since 2004, and the narrative is continuing to be written. Um, But then you've got Tampa Bay, who's a two-time defending Stanley Cup champion, and they are the two-time champs for a reason. They have a lot of talent and a lot of championship experience, and now they're tied one-to-one. So I think that's what Tampa's really going to lean on is – all the talent in the championship experience that they have, because they have a ton of depth. They've got Stamkos. They've got Hedman. Um, they just have a ton of weapons on the ice. Um, but the key for the Leafs, because we know what Tampa can do, but the key for uh, Toronto, in my eyes, is finding scoring, you know, similar to um, 
similar to the New York series, you know, similar to New York, finding scores outside of Austin Matthews, because we know Austin Matthews is going to light it up. This is a 60 goal score. We know he's going to put at least one in, or at least try to put at least one in each game. Um, when you look at game two, obviously Kyle Clifford got suspended. I think that hurt a little bit, obviously getting blown out. Um, but I'm looking at other guys like Bunting, Kerfoot, TJ Brody. I think those guys need to support uh, Austin Matthews as best they can. Um, and you got to remember, this was a team last year with most of that core had a 3-1 lead over Montreal. Okay? You got to remember that. They had the 3-1 lead over Montreal. They blew it. Toronto's back in the playoffs. The Canadians are have were the worst team in the regular season, you know, statistically wise. So the fact that that Toronto team blew a 3-1 lead to that Montreal team, I think says a lot. And it's hard for me to really put my faith in the Leafs to win this series just because of that history. So I, I think for now, I think in a seven-game series, Tampa would be my favorite. Of course, it's only been two games. You know, when the series shifts to Tampa, now that it's split one-to-one, I think that opens the door for a lot of things. So right now, I will say Tampa is the favorite, but that could change. That All of these series could change, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. Um, shifting over, though, to the West, you know, short time on the uh, Avalanche of the Preds series, just because I think Colorado should have no problem in this first-round series. I mean, look at what they did in Game 1. Two for five on the power play. They outshot the Preds 45-25. to 25. The Avalanche's offense is just so hard to shut down, and I don't think Nashville can do it. I don't think they can do it. So I think Avalanche, easy series. Easy series. I think it'll even be a sweep. I think they can sweep them. Um, but, you know, I could be totally wrong before the episode even comes out since game three, uh, game two, I should say, is being played tonight. Um, elsewhere in the West, Flames and Stars. I think, you know, similar to what the Warriors and the Grizzlies are in the NBA, I think this is the, the series that's going to have the most storylines. Because, I mean, look at the heated moment that happened in game one, you know, right at the end of the first period, there was a fight and then a secondary fight, which led to ejections. Um, and I just think, you know, it, similar storylines, you know, I think Dallas is taking the Memphis side of things, just showing that they are no rollover. You know, they're not a young team like Memphis, but they are the seven seed, and they're kind of showing that um, they're no rollover. You know, this is not an easy team to get past. I mean, they only lost one, nothing. Okay. One to nothing was the score in game one. Just keep that in mind uh, to a Calgary team that, was at the top of the West for a very long time. I think in this series, though, the big factor is special teams. You know, if they both play as well as they did, Calgary was one of five on the power play. Dallas was 0-5 on the power play. Um, so it's going to take little tiny things. It's whoever, it's kind of like whoever flinches first um, is going to be, you know, looking in the rearview mirror um, throughout their whole thing. Um, Calgary defense played extremely well. I mean, they're, they only allowed 16 shots, um, which Markstrom was able to stop for Calgary. So that blue line defense looks so strong, and that's why I'd favor Calgary. But it's going to be tight. I think this is a six-game series um, that I could see the Flames coming out of. But I think for storyline purposes, this is going to be the series to watch. Uh, I'd say probably the second-best series might be the Wild and the Blues in terms of the Western Conference because, I mean, Look at two different performances in two different games. St. Louis winning game 1-4-0, Minnesota winning game 2-6-2, two, 
And I, I really put this all on Minnesota because I think the wild have to control their special teams and limit their penalties. I mean, so far on the first two games, they've had 17 total penalties for a combined 44 minutes. Okay. And in game one, they were zero of six on the power play. Um, so they clearly made the adjustments from game one to game two, because then they went two of three on the power play. But even having those kind of penalties um, is, is going to put you um, it's going to put you uh, in, a, in a big hole early on. Cause I mean, you get shut out in game one and then you do allow, I mean, so far scoring is six, six right now. They're t- the, each team has scored six goals. So Minnesota has got to find a way uh, to defend better. Um, I think another big difference is the hat tricks. Obviously you had David Perrin get one for the blues and then uh, Kirill Kaprizov in game two for the wild. Uh, keep in mind, Tory Krug did assist in all three of them, former Bruin. Um, but the reason I'd favor the wild in this series is just because the steady play of Mark Andre Fleury. He has a ton of experience in the net. He had a great run uh, with Pittsburgh early on in his career. Then he had uh, most recently with the golden Knights. Um, I think this is that that's the difference to me. It's just Mark Andre Fleury, you know, his experience in this first round series. So I think this is again, another seven game series. I think this could go and I would favor Minnesota. I think Minnesota comes out of this one. But then the final series we got to talk about is Kings and Oilers. I mean, what a tight game one it was between the two, but then Edmonton responding in a big way uh, in game two. Philip Denault, the go-ahead goal in game one uh, with less than five minutes to go. And really, it, it's all been on Edmonton that I, I see, you know, because they didn't play defensively really well uh, in game one, you know, they got to fix their slow starts. You know, they trailed game uh, two to one in game one, and then they were scoreless in game two, but they were still tied zero to zero. So I think the Oilers just, they have a lot of slow starts. Um, so if they fix that, then this is going to be an easy series for them. Um, the other thing I see is, you know, finding pieces to help Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Cause I mean, they, they had it in game two when Evander Kane scored twice, but these are two guys who were number one and number four in points and number two and number seven in goals during the regular season. And Connor McDavid is already playing better than he did last season. You know, remember last year, Edmonton got swept by Winnipeg and he only had four points in that series over four games. Now he's got four points in two games. So we know McDavid is already pay- playing better than last year's postseason. But where's the other help coming from for the Oilers? I think that's the key. Because this team has the talent to go to the Stanley Cup, but they just haven't been able to uh, make it happen. They haven't been able to make it happen. Um, so if, if Edmonton continues to play the way they are, then you know I see no problem with them out of the series or even into the Stanley Cup because it's just getting all the pieces together at the right time. But you got to remember, it's only been a few days since the Stanley Cup playoffs got underway. So if we're getting this much action during the first two games, imagine what the rest of the NHL playoffs is going to look like. Now we move on to the NFL, and it has been exactly one week Since the NFL draft got underway and I gave you a preview, now let's give you a review. Um, I would say, you know, for as little buzz 
as there was for this NFL draft, I would call it one of the more, maybe not memorable drafts, uh, but definitely in recent memory, one of the more chaotic ones, just because there was a ton of movement. There was really a lot of uncertainty to uh, who goes where. I mean, outside of maybe the top five, you you couldn't guess, you know, what teams were going to do. You You had, you know, multiple mock drafts that had multiple players for one team being picked. But so far in a week, I think all the reactions are kind of settling down. And for me, there were a couple of winners that I wanted to talk about. I think the first one for me that stands out is probably Detroit. I think the Lions got some really good prospects in last week's draft. You had arguably the top prospect in the draft in uh, Aiden Hutchinson. You picked at number two who is a Michigan guy. He went to Michigan. Now he gets to play in the same state. Um, and then you traded up to number 12 to get another weapon on offense and arguably maybe the top weapons minus the injury in Jamison Williams. You know, I talked about it last week that if Jamison Williams hadn't torn his ACL, he might've been the top wide receiver prospect in the draft and he could have easily gone top 10. Um, but I thought just what they did, they addressed all of their needs. And I said specifically that um, Detroit had to look at defense. And sure enough, six of the eight picks that they had were on defensive players, um, including Kirby Joseph at the safety position, who I really like. I mean, I can't remember the last time the Lions had, you know, maybe a shutdown corner or a strong uh, secondary um, but I think their D line gets better. I think their offense is, um, is, is getting much better, you know, adding Williams later on in the year. And, and like I said, uh, last week, the Lions had a really good, uh, end of the regular season. You know, they had their first win. They had a big win against the Cardinals. And even though, you know, some of the games they lost, they looked good. I mean, they were running with Seattle, um, Amonra St. Brown looked good. Jared Goff looked like a competent quarterback. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to say the Lions are all of a sudden going to turn into the playoffs, but I think they're going to be better than uh, they were the last two seasons. That It's really what I think. I think they're going to be better than they've been. And, you know, they could be below 500, but I think you're going to slowly see that steady improvement. You know, you hear a lot about Dan Campbell how not just the the team, but the community, the city of Detroit loves Dan Campbell at quarterback, uh, at the coaching spot, you know, the kind of culture that he's instilled. Plus you have all these guys, all this talent. I think in a few years, we're going to talk about Detroit um, being a, a good team, you know, not, not a Super Bowl team, but a good team. So I think for the future, I think the Lions had a really good draft. Now, it's hard for me to say for the second year in a row, but the Jets had a really good draft, too. I uh, it, I said it last year how well they were, and then obviously they didn't uh, play well. But I think for the first round, I thought the Jets did a really good job. Um, both of their top 10 picks, I thought, were spent extremely well. You got the top cornerback, um, or one of the top cornerbacks, I should say, in Ahmad Sauce Gardner at number four who I think could be, could be a rookie of the year contender. Because you got to remember the last time the Jets had a good team, it had a strong defense. It had, it was great on the D line. And then on the linebackers, 
and they had a shutdown cornerback by the name of Darrell Reeves. Now look at what they did on defense. You bring in Gardner to be your cornerback. You get Jordan Whitehead in free agency uh, from Tampa. And on the D-line, you get Carl Lawson coming back from a torn Achilles. Um, not only that, but you throw in Jermaine Johnson at number 26. You know, a guy who arguably was a top 10, top 15 talent who fell all the way back to 26. You make the trade with Tennessee. You get him at 26. You put him on the D-line. So I think the Jets did a good job improving their defense. And then on offense, you know, giving Zach Wilson another weapon with getting Garrett Wilson at number 10 from Ohio State. You add him to a receiving core that includes a healthy Corey Davis, Elijah Moore, Braxton Berrios, and your free agent signing from Cincinnati, CJ Uzama at tight end. I think the Jets, again, similar to Detroit, they're not going to be a playoff team or a team that's going to contend right away next season. But I think with the roster, you can kind of see the direction that they're going in. And I don't think they find themselves, you know, at the bottom, at the cellar. Um, you know, Robert Sala, similar to Dan Campbell, a lot of people in the Jets, uh, a lot of Jets fans like him as the coach and like sort of the culture that he brought in. And as long as Zach Wilson is healthy, then there is a shot. There's going to be a chance. But um, for what the Jets did in the draft, I, I hate to say it as a Pats fan, but they did they did good. They did good. I mean, it is a competitive AFC East, you know, with the, the Bills, the Dolphins, and the Pats. So it's clear that the Jets are at the bottom, but I don't think they're going to be, you know, in the total seller. I could see maybe like six wins on the, on the year, you know, much better than what they've done uh, in previous years. And then the final team, I would say probably did a good job that I want to talk about are the Titans. You know, it's hard to say that they did a really good job despite trading their top receiver, but I thought for what they uh, did in the draft, I thought they did a good job. I mean, you trade a guy like AJ Brown to the Eagles for the 18th pick. I mean, you can clearly, you know, just listening to reports, you know, it sounded like Brown and Tennessee were nowhere close on extension talks. So you knew that a move was going to be imminent. But when you're looking at the skill set uh, that Traylon Burks has, who they picked at number 18, you know, the comparison is AJ Brown. He's a guy with size and speed. He can uh, catch a lot of 50-50 balls. Um, I don't know if I'd put my faith in him along with the other receiving options that they have. Because um, you got to remember, this was a team that finished number one. And um, you obviously didn't re-sign Julio Jones and you just trade away A.J. Brown. That's your top two receiving targets. I mean, you still have Derrick Henry in the backfield. But still, when you when you trade away or you don't bring your top two players back, you're essentially saying Traylon Burks is going to be your number one. You want a rookie to be your top uh, receiving option. It's hard to say, hard to say, um, but you know, for what they, what they got back at a discounted rate, um, I think it's pretty good. I think also getting a value quarterback in the third round in Malik Willis, um, you know, reports are coming out that he's going to be Ryan Tannehill's replacement at some point, which is going to be a situation to monitor within itself. I mean, listening to Ryan Tannehill in that press conference, you know, we, he was open about, you know, mentally struggling after that game against the Bengals. Um, I give him props for that, but the quote that he had about Malik Willis, where he said he doesn't think it's his job to mentor him. I think that was the wrong thing to say. 
Because, I mean, if you're Ryan Tannehill, you know, you are 33 and you are the starting quarterback of a playoff team that has Super Bowl aspirations. So I think your mentality has to be, I'm the starter of this team. I want to be that guy. So I can understand, you know, why he doesn't, you know, want to mentor him. Um, But if he's seeing his career on the end of the horizon, like everyone else's, then you would want to mentor him. So I see the mindset of not wanting to mentor Malik Willis um, and not wanting to try and develop him. But the writing's on the wall for Tennessee. And I think this is a real kick in the butt for Tannehill. Um, You know, because if I was Ryan Tannehill, I would say, oh, no, they just drafted a quarterback that they want to develop. I've got to play better. Uh, to try and lead this team to a Super Bowl. So um, I, I thought Tennessee did a good job in addressing the future, maybe not the immediate future, but getting a guy like Traylon Burks could be another A.J. Brown and then your quarterback of the future, which, you know, according to uh, scouts, if he develops, can be a good quarterback. So that'll be a storyline to watch for. I thought Tennessee did a good job in uh, those kinds of moves. But those are the winners. I think they're only it's hard to say if there are any losers in the draft um, just because obviously I'm not an expert, but I think two, you know, teams that I thought didn't really do a great job in the draft really stood out to me. Number one kind of hits close to home and that's the Patriots probably just because they had the most unique draft picks. You know, they didn't look at everyone else's big board. They looked at their big board and the kind of picks that they made were, um, you know, kind of scratching my head at, which we'll talk about a little bit in the next segment. Um, but when you compare it to teams who else had draft pick, um, when you compare it to other teams who got better in the draft, I wouldn't say they did the best. Um, but then the second one that stood out to me was probably Chicago. I don't think the bears really didn't do much, much to address their needs. I mean, when you look at the roster of Chicago of the bears from last season, you lost Allen Robinson in free agency. You traded Khalil Mack, and you haven't signed Akeem Hicks. That's arguably your top three players. You still got Roquan Smith at the linebacker position, and obviously you have Justin Fields uh, at your quarterback and David Montgomery as your running back. But if you're trying to help Justin Fields, where are your weapons? You know, you didn't really get him anything in free agency. You know, Byron Pringle is your top receiver. Um, But in the draft, you waited until the third round and got a guy by the name of Velas Jones Jr. Compared to the other receivers you could have had, like maybe Chris Olave or Tyquan Thornton or John Mechie, you know, you had all of them on your board. You could have maybe traded up to, to get them, but instead you want to address defense. I don't think defense is the thing you should be concerned about. I mean, obviously, it should be a concern if you're trading Khalil Mack. Um, I, I'm not sure what the Bears are really doing uh, in this draft and how they're getting better, especially if you have a Packers team with Aaron Rodgers coming back, a Lions team that's slowly getting better, and a Vikings team that just missed the playoffs. So I'm really – I would love to hear what management uh, for the Bears – what their mentality was for this draft. Cause honestly, from an outsider's perspective, I'm not sure what they did to get better. I'm not really sure if they even addressed it. Um, but you know, we're talking about the draft only after a week, you know, you don't make these conclusions on how well a team does until 
years after if any of these players have sustainability in the league. So instant reactions are a big thing to talk about right after the draft, but we got to wait until years to come to see if these winners and losers are for real. time we look into the city of boston for our teams it's our let's get local segment of the week and while we're on the subject let's talk patriots you know as i said it's an interesting they had an interesting draft and they they hit most of their needs i would say they hit cornerback they hit you know defense but what are they doing what are they doing i have no idea why are you getting a guard at 29, I understand getting a guard if it was someone like, um, I think it was uh, Lane, not Lane Johnson, um, you know, someone like that, uh, the guy from Boston College. But you're getting a guy who was projected to go in the second or third round. Um, or even, you know, maybe the fourth round, possibly, possibly. And you use your 29th pick on that guy. I'm, I'm not... I'm not discounting Cole Strange, you know, just reading about him and looking at his video. He looks like he's going to be a good player, you know, and we've seen the Patriots develop guards over the years. We've seen what they've done with Logan Mankins, uh, with Nate Solder, with Joe Tooney, Shaq Mason, what they've done. But this is a this was a self-wounded hole that they made. You could have had Shaq Mason, but instead you get Cole Strange as your first round pick when you could have had other guys, you could have easily, you know, gotten a, the top corner, one of the top cornerbacks, like, uh, like what Kansas city got, um, with the, with the pick you traded to them had, um, uh, 20, 21 or something like that. You could have had a top wide receiver. Um, I mean, I just don't get it. I don't get what bill Belichick is doing for this Patriots draft. Why are you, using your first round pick on a guy who could have gone the third round. Why did you trade to number 50 to get a wide receiver who many could argue could have gone in the fourth round, you know, Tyquan Thornton, you know, I love his speed. I think he's probably going to be, you know, your kick returner, punt returner just because of his speed. You know, he's probably best fit on special teams. And why are you getting a quarterback? Why are you getting Bailey Zappi in the fourth round? You know, you already have Brian Hoyer. Is he, is he just going to be like your sustained backup? Is he you're going to be a longtime third stringer? Because, I mean, that that's ultimately what I'm seeing in this guy is, um, you know, you're going to get rid of Jared Stidham, and this kid, Zappy is going to be your, um, your third stringer. Why are you using him in the fourth round, for goodness sakes? Like, I, I just don't get it. I really don't get what the the Patriots are going for here and the fact is they have a need at linebacker and they didn't do anything for that they did nothing so unless Anthony Jennings or Josh Uche is gonna play bet a lot play great alongside Matt Judon or uh, Jawan Bentley or Mac Wilson you know I guess what's different about this Patriots team I think the reason why you know fans might be so heated at this 
is because they're looking around them at the AFC and looking how much better that conference has gotten. Meanwhile, you're sitting there and ultimately you're getting worse instead of better. So I think if it was another offseason where the AFC wasn't loading up as much as they were, it would be another story. But the fact is, you know, this was a playoff team that finished uh, 10 and 6. They finished 10 and 6. Actually, uh, 10 and 7, excuse me. They finished 10 and 7 and got to the playoffs. Now you're looking at them with what the rest of the AFC has done. They don't even make the playoffs, uh, according to some projections and maybe in my eyes. So, you know, that's the reason, at least in my eyes, why I think everyone has been heated at Bill to making these kinds of draft decisions is because the conference around them is getting better and you're not doing anything to get better. I mean, Malcolm Butler is still your number one cornerback. That's not someone I would put my hands and faith in. But the Patriots don't play until they get into training camp once they hit uh, July and they hit the preseason in August. Let's talk about some of the teams that are playing right now. And the story is the Boston Celtics. It's been a tale of two games so far in their second round matchup against the Milwaukee Bucks. And like I said in the NBA segment, their defense made a huge adjustment from game one into game two, trusting individuals to guard Giannis uh, one-on-one. You saw it with Horford, and you saw it with Grant Williams, who in my eyes has been the real unsung hero of the playoffs so far. In the postseason, he's averaged 12 points a game, and he's shooting 55% from three. And not only that, individually, he slowed down Kevin Durant, and he slowed down Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think Grant Williams is a huge X factor going down the road. And also keep in mind, there was no Marcus Smart. You didn't have your point guard, and you're clearly seeing the difference from when Derek White starts into the line, starts in the lineup versus uh, Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart, you can rely on offense. He's at least, you know, even though he's a streaky shooter, he can get you points uh, compared to Derek White, who didn't score anything. And that's your backup point guard, okay? I would even put Peyton Pritchard in there more than I'd put Derek White in there the way things are going. Um, But again, Jalen Brown having the hot start, I think is huge for the Celtics. The fact that he scored 20 points in that first half, and I think he had like 17 in the first quarter or something like that, maybe something like that. Um, But him playing well, and obviously Jason Tatum playing the way he is, I think is huge. Um, I think they eventually Robert Williams is going to get more and more minutes. And I think he's going to be a big factor. I think physically, you know, he doesn't match with, you know, Lopez or Giannis or Bobby Portis, but he's still in the right place at the right time. So I think, um, defense is not going to be a problem. You know, like I said, last week in this series, I don't think defense is going to be a problem, um, for the Celtics team and shutting down Milwaukee in general. Because I think, you know, eventually Giannis is going to go off, but it's a matter of limiting him. And they've limited him so far. You know, this is a guy who's put, uh, who shot uh, nine of 24 and then 11 of 27. So the fact that the defense is doing that, even in game one, they did that uh, whilst um, not having a great offensive game, um, I think is a big uh, confidence boost if you're a Celtics fan. But I think the one concern you could have is relying on the threes too much. I know that you're giving them open looks and they made a, a franchise record, 20 of them in game two, but they've had 164 total field goal attempts and over half of them, 
93 of them have been threes. So, you know, as the cliche goes, it's a make or miss league. Obviously, if you're making them like they did in game two, that's great. But you also want to get some two pointers in there, which they they scaled back on. Um, They made the adjustment from game one to game two. Um, So just relying on the threes too much. I think would be my only concern. I mean, if they are getting wide open looks and getting them off of, you know, a third pass or fourth pass, you know, it's just if Milwaukee's giving it to you early on in the shot clock, that would be my concern. You know, it's threes off of the passes that I'm okay with. Um, But so far it's been fairly even. And like I said, I still favor the Celtics to come out of this series, but I think the um, the the key for game three is obviously not getting is getting off to a hot start and probably you know you want to have a good first half because we saw what happened in the second half they kind of went back to what they did in game one and that's what brought Milwaukee back into the game but eventually they put their foot on the gas uh, in game two uh, in uh, the fourth quarter I should say they put their foot on the gas and uh, they were able to uh, dominate in that first uh, fourth quarter and eventually win the game uh, or get that lead to at least 20 points. You know, that's the thing. How does Milwaukee adjust? I don't know. How will Boston adjust to that? I don't know, but I think this is a series that goes the distance. And I think if you're a fan, if they lose game three, you shouldn't panic too much. Cause as I said, this is a team that's very uh, streaky where if they get a certain amount of days off, you know, that might hurt them. Like we saw, uh, in game one, you know, how they look in game three is going to be a real telltale sign. So it's going to be, you know, I'm just really liking uh, what I'm seeing from the Celtics and watching in general. I'm very entertained as a fan. Uh, but the other playoff team that's out there are the Bruins, and they have a totally different story right now, uh, falling behind in their series 0-2. And like I said uh, in our NHL segment, they just look overmatched. They look overmatched and overpowered against this Carolina team. And I'm not going to say that it's all on their play because let's face it, the officials in game two lost all control. And I just don't, I, I question that officiating in game two. How does a guy in Lampus Hinholm, uh, Hampus Lindholm take a shot to the chin, which looked intentional by all intents and purposes. And then the response to that the Bruins lose a guy to injury and yet they're going on the power play. They're going on the five on threes. That makes no sense to me. No sense to me at all. And probably, you know, that guy for Carolina isn't going to be suspended. He's not going to be suspended for that hit because the officials on the ice deemed it clean, but then, you know, you get penalty on top of penalty on top of penalty. Eventually it went to five to three, you know, it it was very 50, 50, the officials just losing all control during that second period when it seemed like there was a fight every two minutes or some kind of skirmish. And yet they favored uh, Carolina to have those advantages. Um, But if you are the Bruins and if you are Bruce Cassidy, composure has got to be huge, you know, in game two, even though the officials were making those bad calls and you lost a guy like campus Lindholm and uh, you had a guy like, you know, they just lost their composure. That's all it was. You know, you see 
you know, even though the third string goalie was going after Marshan, Marshan's response shouldn't have been like that, you know, throwing that high stick in there. And then you throw in Brandon Carlo and Charlie McAvoy and uh, Grizzlick and those guys, you know, I think that's, you look at the, you look at the coaching as to, you know, if you lose your composure, you got to go back to uh, the coaching side of things and what Bruce Cassidy, you know, how connected is he to this team? And this is, you know, the benefits of working at WEI is you, you're hearing guys, you know, uh, Jermaine Wiggins, who's part of the Greg Hill show and Courtney Cox, uh, those guys, those two uh, argued, you know, how connected is Bruce Cassidy to this team? And I kind of agreed to them to a point where I don't know how well Cassidy has his team, you know, how much faith he has in them, you know, look at what they're doing against Carolina. They're, they've been outscored 26 to four so far in this playoffs by Carolina, including the playoffs. They've been outscored on the season by the Hurricanes 26 to four, 26 to four. Okay. Honestly, if nothing changes dramatically when we get to game three in Boston, it's over in four. It's over. I'm sorry for all you Bruins fans out there, but if they don't change dramatically once they play at the TD Garden, then they're done. They're absolutely done. I mean, the defense is now going to scramble with Hampus Lindholm not in there. You know, the way Linus Allmark has played, you have to put Jeremy Swayman at least in there to give you a shot. And, you know, we saw how much he struggled uh, when Lindholm wasn't uh, on that top two line on the defense. So I honestly, I don't know where the Bruins go. I don't know where they go from here, but the series can change if you get that home ice back and if you can win these two games uh, in Boston. But right now, they're done. I say they're done. And I know Chris Scheim, uh, one of the producers that I work with is a is a big Bruins believer. Sorry, Shine, but this is this is over. It's over. I think it's going to be over, and you're going to get swept. And Bruce Cassidy is going to lose his job if they get swept. Um, but you know, the good thing for them is that they're not the only team that uh, sucks right now in the city of Boston. The Red Sox, I'm sorry, they stink. They absolutely stink right now. They're slowly getting better, but right now they stink look at what the bullpen did in the extra innings last night okay you brought in a guy like jake deekman you have energy you got energy with bogarts in that home run taking the lead four three you saw it he blasted it over the monster he flipped that bat it was a turning point and then look what happens jake deekman gives up the tying run you get to extra innings you got uh barnes blows it sabamura blows it and then the rest of the bullpen is basically garbage right now you got Salamora's stupid error uh in that game against baltimore in extra innings cutter crawford can't pitch in the bullpen and phillips valdez in general what is he doing in the bullpen and yet this is a team that's in the top 15 in team era and i will say part of that has to go on the shoulders of nathan evaldi and michael walker and garrett willock uh and rich hill just to name a few guys because I think the starting rotation is fine. It's your bullpen that stinks right now in terms of the bullpen. And not only that, but you just, there's a lineup, you know, how does a lineup like this play as bad as they are? Because you have, ultimately, you have five on paper, five incredibly hot hitters in Bogarts, Endeavors, in Martinez, 
Trevor Story, and I could even throw Kike in there. But it's everyone else who stinks right now. Alex Verdugo's cooling off. Christian Vasquez isn't getting any better. Bobby Dahlbeck still can't swing the bat. And Jackie Bradley is as inconsistent as, you know, us taking our uh, sports takes. So you have that. You have Kike, who stinks. Trevor Story hasn't been Trevor Story since he signed with Boston. So I don't know what's going on with this lineup right now and why they are not hitting the ball. We've got, you know, you've got guys hit playing small ball, but in terms of the power, you're, you're still relying on Devers, Bogarts, and Martinez hitting those long balls. But after that, you don't really got anything else. You know, it's been a month, and the lineup still can't hit for consistency. I think they've scored uh, more than five runs, I think, four times on the season, maybe four or five times, you know. I could probably count them on my finger, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. And if you're already digging yourself this kind of a hole early on with how tight the AL East is with the Jays and the Rays and the Yankees, I mean, the Yankees just came off an 11-game winning streak, okay? You lost a series to Toronto, three out of four. You lost two out of three to Baltimore, for goodness sake. Okay, you can't turn that around. Your series, you might as well pack your bags and make your tea times now. But this is only first month reactions. You know, the good news is there's still plenty of months to be played in this MLB season. If they continue to play like this when we hit the all-star break in July, then we got a problem. Then we got a problem if the Red Sox continue to play like this. But as I said, it's still early in the Red Sox season. And the good news is there's plenty of headlines from all our Boston teams that plenty of Boston fans are willing to talk about. As we always do to end our show, it's our LOL moment of the week. And this one goes to someone who is talking about the playoffs, but is watching the playoffs from home. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Patrick Beverly, the Timberwolves guard, decides to sort of chime in during the Golden State and Memphis series. So Ultimately, the, the headline I have for this moment is Patrick Beverly has a hard time understanding how to troll someone. Why? Because he decides to put out a tweet after John Morant puts up 47 points in game two in the victory over the Golden State Warriors. Patrick Beverly decides to say, quote, 47 piece. And then he had the emoji with the uh, hand on his uh, face, the face palm kind of thing. Didn't happen in our series. Just saying, hashtag facts. Here's my question for Patrick Beverly. Who's still in the playoffs? And who's sitting on the couch watching them? That's you. You. I understand Minnesota put up a fight in game six, but there's only one fact that matters, Patrick Beverly, and that is the W. Who got the W in that series? Memphis did. Who's still playing in the playoffs Memphis is who despite not putting up 47 points beat you 
in the first round of the playoffs. Ja Morant did. Now, as I said, who's sitting on the couch watching the Memphis Grizzlies? You are, Patrick Beverly. Who's throwing out facts that boost your ego and make you happy? You are, Patrick Beverly. And while you want to, you know, say, oh, it's a it's a team mindset, because, you know, you have guys like maybe Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards, D'Lo Russell, everyone in Minnesota, look at that tweet and say, and look at that. He's got a point. You know, John Morant didn't do that against us. Okay. But even if John Morant doesn't put up 47, he still had the dunk of the year against your team. He still put in the game-winning layup against your team. And Memphis in general totally outmatched you in most of the those games. You had a double-digit fourth-quarter lead, and you couldn't hold it. You couldn't hold it. So I don't know if these facts that Patrick Beverly are spitting is completely relevant to the situation. So maybe Patrick Beverly should just maybe take his fingers off the Twitter keys and just realize what he's tweeting about and why he's probably not the right guy to do that. You know, I don't get it. You know, I mean, this is Patrick Beverly, though. He's just a nuisance. He's an irritant. And it translates off the court as well as on the court. So Patrick Beverly, for throwing out a tweet that you think are facts, and but everyone else thinks is not, you have landed yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that wraps it up for another edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you are watching us on YouTube or listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure, as always, you are following our pages on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.